Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very pleased to be joined by Ray Belli, the host of Words for Granted, uh, a really interesting podcast about etymology and why words are important and don't take them for granted. And uh, Ray is also one of the founding members of Lyceum, uh, which is an educational podcasting platform that we've talked about a few times on the show. Really excited to talk about etymology, uh, entomology, philology, a bunch of different ologies, lots of stuff about words. Ray Belli, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and your show uh, is, is an interesting one for someone who likes to learn when they listen. And I think a lot of people who listen to Trending in Education fall into that category. Can you talk a little bit for us about what Words for Granted is, how it came into being, and how it intersects with who you are and what you do? Sure. Okay, so a quick intro to Words for Granted for those listening who might not have heard the show before Mm -hmm. is generally each episode looks at the evolution of a single word over the course of history. And, you know, on one hand, Yes, that is what etymology is. But etymology to, you know, most people just, it has this implication of, oh, you have a root word, and then that root word is is in this other word. So, and then these other words are connected, and they're cognates, and then all that does is help you get a good score on your SAT. Right. Uh, But that is in no way why I'm interested in etymology. Like, etymology for me um, offers an incredibly rich insight into how language changes. And, and first of all, that it can change. Mm-hmm. One of the most fascinating takeaways from learning about etymology is that we have the dictionary and the dictionary is this imposing thing that we have in our culture. And on, at this point, all modern languages, or I should say all widely spoken modern languages have dictionaries. And right. when, when, when you look at a word in print and then there's a definition next to it, it, it appears as if there, there is this authority saying that this is what the word means. And it yep. really does mean this thing. Yeah. But, 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 but the reality is definitions don't fall out of the sky. They're not like divinely ordained. Meanings evolve through, through usage. Language is the byproduct of people interacting, having certain cultural values, having certain experiences. Certain words fall out of usage that way. Certain words evolve and change. And, and the whole thing is a really organic process yeah uh, the, the 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 phenomenon of language that is um and yeah. particularly particularly semantics the study of of meaning right um and it's fluid and, right like it it the idea that language and etymology is is moving in time you know so what a word means now even if it's a word that's been in the english language for thousands of years what it means two or three years from now may be fundamentally different for all the reasons you were describing. That's right. And the way that words change varies. There are certain trends that you can talk about. I would say the biggest one that that I look at on my show is sort of misunderstanding. I'm interested in how we get things wrong. And that Mm -hmm. usually comes from translations, from one thing into another language. Right. Right. or, or I'd love to hear more from you on that. You mentioned how 
frequently the language evolves through mistakes. Sometimes it's intentional, you know, someone is trying to uh, like push the meaning of a word in a different direction. Can you, can you expand on that? Maybe give us a few examples of how the language evolves and changes. Sure. So just off the top of my head, one that comes to mind is the word demon, mm-hmm. which now we think of a demon as some sort of evil supernatural entity possibly in cahoots with the devil. Maybe right. a demon has like a pitchfork and is red. And, yeah. Uh, has, has, a scary, has, a, has a scary name. Yeah. Uh, m- Might have been in the, the monster manual for those of us who played Dungeons and Dragons growing up. You know, like very uh, spooky. Yeah. Precisely. However, the, the evolution of demon is, is a perfect example of culture using a word to identify a concept, but then when the concept changes, the, the implications of that word also changes. So, so it comes from the Greek word daimon, and originally it referred to any deity, and then it wound up referring to lesser deities. Mm-hmm. And then Socrates, later on in the timeline of ancient Greece, used it to mean your personal inspiration. So mm-hmm. the sort of like... Your, your Jiminy Cricket, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. And then, you know, Plato had a totally different take on this idea. And then the word entered the Christian lexicon. Mm. And, you know, with, without going into all the details, y- you have something that originally, I mean, at, at some point in the word's history, it meant conscience, you know, the, mm-hmm. or, or, or your sort of the inspiration of your soul. Like and, your, and spirit, to, your spirit animal. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, today... It's like something that it's an evil spirit that possesses you. Yeah. Um, and, and of mention, course, not, not to mention we're, we're, we're not really supposed to come up with our spirit animals. And I think that that's a loss. That's a net loss. I think we could all use an old school understanding of our, our demons, you know, like just try to figure out, are you a, for me, it might be a red panda because, because I like the playfulness. They seem intelligent and, and they're, they're just kind of playful. So, so yeah, that might be my, my daemon so to speak. And it's the, how would you spell the original demon? So actually the, the word in this sort of older Greek, you, I mean, you could say mythological sense actually still exists. It's technically a variation of the word demon, but it's, it's spelled D-A-E-M-O-N. Right. And, I thought so. Yep. And, and sometimes it's pronounced daemon. Uh, yes. To just distinguish these terms, but they ultimately are two variations or variants is the more technically uh, correct term. Two yeah. variants of, of, of a single root that have come down to us with different meanings. And of course, demon, as we know it, is the more prevalent one in, in our lexicon and our culture. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and your, your podcast frequently is exploring a word like that. How do you choose which words you want to cover as part of your show? So I usually break the show up into thematic mini-series. That word demon was part of a very long series I did maybe two years ago on biblical etymology, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which was probably my favorite series that I ever did, mostly because there was so much textual analysis. And again, the, like I said, my favorite sort of thing is, is using words to see how concepts change and what we get wrong. Yeah. And, you know, I, I should just say this, that 
the Bible is is just like such an incredible etymological tre- treasure trove, yeah. particularly the King James Bible, because people th- there aren't many texts from the early 17th century that people still read, and right. the, King, the King James Bible is one of them. It's technically it's it's written in modern English, early modern English, but so much of the language that we use today is is different from the way it was used then and when you see these words in in the king james bible particularly demon yep. uh, i mean even, even the word church the the word meat is a great example the word meat appears uh in the king james version and it typically is used to mean food in in a general sense or sustenance so you have these passages where jesus is talking about i'm I'm, going to butcher the the quote uh but something about the the meat of the spiritual meat i think is is, is something that jesus said which sounds very funny to us yeah well it's funny that you butchered the spiritual meat there too so good job by you and as you were talking about the king james bible it's probably the most widely circulated earlier version of english that is out there yeah, uh, hand, hands down. Other than, yeah. I mean, along there with Shakespeare, but but yes. more people more people are invested in the Bible than they are in Shakespeare, which is what makes the study of the King James Bible and and its etymology and its use of language just so fascinating to me because mm-hmm. you have a text that people are really invested in because it's mm-hmm. a religious text, right? Um, and I'm in no way a religious scholar, but you can't deny the ways that language changes and that, that the meanings of words change over time. So mm-hmm. to read an older religious text, literally, I mean, you, you're, you're missing something. I mean, you, you, yeah. you can sort of, you have to do a translation in your own language, which right. is fascinating because I mean, it is written in English. You see the word meat and we know what meat means to us, right? But the word meat experienced something called semantic narrowing, where uh, yes. it used to be broader. It used to mean all foods generally, right. Right. and now it just means animal flesh. So, right. I mean, does does an understanding of exactly what the translators of the King James Bible meant when when they write something something akin to spiritual flesh? I I keep using that example, yeah. but yeah, uh, I, that that's not the exact quote. Just to be clear, it's it's yeah. something like that. Right. Right. Um, but it's making me think also, in addition to the, the power of religious texts, the, the counterpoint of Shakespeare is also interesting in terms of the, the whole concept of poetic license and the sort of fluidity that exists with the language, uh, particularly pre-Gutenberg, but even afterwards. In, in some ways, Shakespeare was fortunate to be in the era that he was, where you could get the, the, the mass distribution through the printed word that didn't really exist prior but a lot of what Shakespeare was doing was was more in line with the oral tradition and was in some ways less tethered to the rigidity of the text and textual analysis. So can, can you expand on that a little bit? Here's what I'm getting from that. The thing that makes Shakespeare and, and you know, not just Shakespeare, but basically all English texts, whether it's Old English, Middle English, or early modern English. Basically, before the late 17th, early 18th century, when spelling, standardized spelling really, really, really uh, became fixed and rigid, mm-hmm. you had all of these variant spellings that reflected the way people spoke. So this, this is a tremendous rabbit hole 
to go down. But there's that that old anecdote where Shakespeare didn't know how to spell his own name, uh, which which is you know not, not exactly true. There, there were no fixed spelling rules back then, so you know if E R E or E A R could imply the same sounds, you had free license to use which, which whichever one you preferred, really. Right. Right, right. So the um, double entendres, the puns, the semantical playfulness that was inherent in Shakespeare and really just the, that form of theatrical performance was being solidified into the, the written word. And then the analysis, I just think that's an interesting interplay where you were talking about Socrates earlier as well. You know, like, it's not like he was writing those things down. Same thing right. with the St. James Bible. How was that actually generated? Who wrote which aspects of it and how much of it was a translation of the oral tradition to print? And, and then just another dimension that maybe we could talk about too is how in some ways podcasting and the, the advent of audio nowadays is almost like the next phase of an evolution towards more of an oral tradition. I realize that's a bit of a leap, so feel free to stay in the etymology lane if you prefer. But I've been really fascinated uh, by how much we almost seem to be moving away from rigid textual sources of truth. And there's more interest in the intimacy and the humanity of the human voice. Just from a personal standpoint, I grew up loving books, devouring books, and always having that feeling, and especially as I, you know, got into college and then got older, you know, you you have more responsibilities, more things to do. You just can't possibly read as much as you used to. So when I discovered podcasting, uh, say back in 20, probably 2012 or so, Mm -hmm. I I basically... (laughs) I, I, I shifted completely to being an audio learner simply because I was able to do other things while getting the information mm-hmm. that, I, that I wanted to learn. And I'm not saying that books, books, are, books are bad or books are a thing of the past. I also still love to read and really treasure those moments that I do actually sit down with a book. I, it's actually one of my greatest pleasures because mm-hmm. I do it so infrequently now. But the, the added dimension of, like you said, the intimacy of, you know, a host speaking to you in, in your headphones while you're, mm-hmm. while, while you're doing the, the sort of mundane things that are part of every day, mm-hmm. um, you start to develop this this long distance relationship with with a stranger that you never even met yeah uh, it's almost as if they become your your daemon you know yeah 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 sure yeah. Uh, and so this this is something that listeners of my podcast certainly don't know so i, I mentioned before we started recording formally i i lead this double life of like a podcaster and podcast education guy mm-hmm. but i'm also a professional musician and i in addition to playing Western music, I also have studied Indian classical music extensively and continue to do so. And the way that that music is taught is in an oral tradition, like master to apprentice sort of lineage learning that, you know, the, my, my guru's lineage goes back, you know, 400 years. And, you know, he was taught by his guru who was taught by his guru. And, and I've been doing 
that kind of learning for almost a decade now. And mm. what I can say is the, the oral tradition, there's something incredibly intimate about that way of learning. And in, in, in terms of learning music, I, I can't imagine learning music in, in the formal, like sort of Western classroom, you know, ha having gone through this experience with a particular teacher and a particular lineage and, mm -hmm. and the sort of the, the bond that, that that creates. And, and what, what I'm getting at is podcasts have a similar effect, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because you're, you're in, in the case of like single host podcasts like my own, you, you have a regular ongoing learning relationship with someone who is teaching you orally you know i'm, I'm not i'm not i'm not testing them I, I really am just passing on information and you know the the diehard listeners that want to have conversations with me do they they write me yeah. emails and and we have that back and forth and so all all of this is to just say that the podcasting medium particularly educational podcasts uh, are are really a special form of learning that you know we 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 have we haven't really seen anything quite like that in history, as far as I know, in in terms of the dissemination. Because like I just said, oral tradition, oral learning is ancient, but before you know, podcasts, before we had microphones, before we were able to share things through RSS feeds, you were limited to whatever teacher was in town or yeah. you know, whatever sort of school or monastery, whatever it is. Right. Um, and then print yeah. print conversely the mass distribution of the printed word was something that was available much sooner in our history. And that disparity, in some ways, the oral tradition is catching up. And then interestingly, because I do want to get your take as, as we get closer to wrapping on what other trends are out there in the world that are capturing your imagination. One of the ones that's really interesting to me, and I've ta I talked to you a bit about it in the setup, is how increasingly audio is being used to generate text and vice versa, so that there is some interoperability between the formats so that you can use the spoken word to generate textual content and vice versa. We are at an interesting stage in that evolution where you could begin a text by reading it with your eyes, pick up a couple of chapters that you listen to, and then when you have the affordance of your eyes, pick up again and, and have that be a seamless, a more seamless experience than it is right now. We are getting to a new phase where the interchangeability and interoperability of speech and textual word language is kind of unprecedented. So I'd love to get your perspective on that. And then as we get closer to closing, if there are any trends that are out there that are capturing your attention beyond what we've talked about so far, I always like to give uh, my guests a chance to share those with our listeners. So first, just the, any parting thoughts on the difference between spoken and uh, textual formats and the influence of technology on all this and then related but separate question anything out there in the world happening that is uh, capturing your imagination these days sure what you said is actually fascinating to me so what i think you were saying is that if you have a text that some people you know you'll read chapter one and then if you have the audiobook that you can then maybe listen to chapters two and three and then you go back to chapter four and you read it and that's sort of a seamless normalized experience of mm -hmm. um engaging with some literary work which which is true but you know where my mind went when you said that is that imagine texts that are composed in such a way that chapter one is meant mm -hmm. to be read 
Mm. Chapter two is meant to be listened to. And then like three and f- that's what I thought you were saying. And then I yeah. realized, no, that was my projection. But wouldn't Just that be cool? I like the idea of the intentionality around the evolution of the genre, which is happening, I think, around audiobooks. Maybe this is related to a trend you're talking about where there's more intentionality around being a little more uh, scripted and theatrical with sound design and other sort of dramatic elements, narrative elements. I do like the idea of almost mixing modalities intentionally to sort of convey a different experience. That, that is also interesting. I know we're coming close to time. So uh, this is fantastic. I'd love to get you back because clearly we could go at length and folks oh, who want to listen to your show. Days, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's words for granted, right? That's right. Words for granted. Yeah, and uh, Ray B E L L I Ray Belli. Ray uh, Ray Belli, yes. Belli, it's like it's like a rebus. But yeah. uh, but any concluding thoughts? Because very much appreciate your time, and and also you've been you've been a great great representative for Lyceum as we've been getting on board there, which has been awesome. I, I would recommend that to our listeners. But any c- concluding uh, thoughts? Oh gosh, no, I'm not sure I can comment on any any trends that are capturing my imagination right now without thinking about it but i will say yeah. one last one last thing about our perspective on language given that audio is now generating text so mm-hmm. there's been just i'll try to say this as quickly as possible historically there's been a divide between the way language is written and the way language is spoken the spoken language being much more informal and and natural and the written language being much more composed, formalized, and agenda-driven. Mm-hmm. And now that we have the inverse happening, we, we have audio generating text that we can read. Mm-hmm. For, for, for linguists that are studying spoken language, this, 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 is, this is an incredible, mm. uh, an, an incredible evolutionary breakthrough, technological breakthrough yes. um, that for, for linguists studying spoken language, it, it's, it's really amazing. And, and I think for people who are like language pedants. The aficionados uh, even, yes. Yeah, language aficionados, there tends to be some sort of abstract ideal that they cling to that, mm. that's really disembodied from actual speech. Mm. So yeah, that's, maybe that's my closing thought for now. Super interesting. Would love to continue the conversation. Ray Belli from Words for Granted and Lyceum is something also worth checking out. Thanks again for your time, Ray. Really fascinating conversation. No problem, Mike. I hope we do it again soon. And for our listeners, we'll be back again soon on Trending in Education. 